This morning we're reading from God's Word, Luke 19, verse 28 through 48. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had been seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those he sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do. For all the people were hanging on his words. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church family. Oh, what a wonderful morning to be together. We are joining with the church around the world, celebrating the week of Christ's Passion beginning here today with what we call and is known as Palm Sunday. I really appreciate that the church historically has set aside time throughout the year to specifically reflect upon certain events in the life of Jesus Christ. And this is of utmost significance to us because Palm Sunday, it leads us to the cross and the cross ultimately leads us to the resurrection. You know, uh, we call days like to this today a, uh, a holiday. And, you know, that is derived from just simply the church calling these, guess what, holy days. Now, a holiday is, is supposed to be a, a holy day, a time where you pause and reflect upon significant things. And today, this text that we just heard read is a day in which Jesus Christ reveals to us and to those at that time 
who he truly is. He makes his identity known. For the last decade or so, uh, one of the most popular set of movies or genre of movies has been uh, the hero movies, the, the superhero movies. And when you watch a superhero movie or if you've ever read the comic strips, you find that um, superheroes, they're always trying to keep their identities hidden, right? They always have their secret identities. Although, come on. All right, what's, what's Superman's secret identity? Who, who, who what? Clark, Clark Kent, right? He wears glasses, nobody can tell. Like, it's the most ridiculous thing in the world, right? Uh, uh, Batman, his secret identity is? Bruce Wayne. Okay, we're going to go a little bit deeper. Spider-Man's is? Peter Parker. Let's see, The Incredible Hulk. Oh, very good. Wow, you guys, you guys know these things, right? And they're always trying to keep their identities hidden. But when you come to Palm Sunday and the three distinct events that we heard read, Jesus is not like the superheroes. Jesus is coming and not wanting his identity to be hidden. But if you pay close enough attention, you see Jesus is actually obviously saying, this is who I am. Do you know who I am? Do you see me for who I truly am? And it, and it begins in a really um, pomp and circumstance sort of way with what we call the triumphal entry. Some 2,000 years ago, Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem riding on a colt on the foal of a donkey. And as he comes to Jerusalem, we heard in the text, the crowd goes wild. They lay their cloaks down before him. In Mark's account of it, we know that they break off palm branches. I mean, can you just imagine that sight? You know, they're just, they're breaking off palm branches like these and they're laying them down so that the hooves of, of the colt don't actually touch the dirt. The, the donkeys are walking over people's cloaks. And then look at what they're saying. In our text, verse 38, they come out and they proclaim, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The people are just overwhelmed at Jesus and they're, they're just celebrating him. And the reason why they're doing it, the text says, is because they see him as something. They see Jesus as the king of the Jews. If you were growing up in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago in Israel, you knew two things to be true. Number one, you were in the promised land, but you were under the oppression of the Roman Empire. You were not a free people, Although you were in the land of promise, you were controlled, you were being overseen by a pagan foreign empire. But the second thing you knew to be true was that God promised in his word that one day he would send a triumphal king that would set the people free. And so on this day, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and for some reason, they think here he is. Here's the promised king. Here's the one who's gonna set us free. They were looking at Jesus as this geopolitical king that would rescue him and it makes complete sense why. Like, have you ever really thought about why they were so hyped up on Jesus? I mean, why they were so excited for him as this promised king. When you take a step back, just, just think about what they had witnessed Jesus do. All right. They had seen him control elements of nature. Crowds had seen him heal the sick, made lepers' spots go away. They watched as he fed a multitude of people with minimal resources, thousands of people with, with just minimal resources. And then finally, most recently in his ministry, they saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. Now tell me, if you had a man on your side 
who could do those things. If you had a king who could raise dead people to life, who could feed multitudes with minimal resources, who could actually control nature, did you see why maybe they were a little excited about having Jesus on their side? They're like, do you have any idea who we got? If Jesus can do all that, the Romans don't stand a chance. I mean, think about having a king who could provide for an army with literally nothing. And then when necessary, call upon nature. We often forget these things when we see, like, why were they so hyped up about Jesus? It was because of the power that they had seen him display. But see, here's the thing. When you actually look at the triumphal entry and what Jesus did riding into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry was not about Jesus coming and proclaiming himself as the king of the Jews. Jesus wasn't interested in, in proclaiming himself just simply as this geopolitical king. Instead, go back to the very start of the story. Do you remember that before he comes into Jerusalem, Jesus does something very intentional and very specific. He looks at two of his disciples and he tells them, here's what I want you to do. Remember, it says he's going to come into Jerusalem. And then he says, I want you to go ahead of me into the city and I want you to find a, a colt. Very specifically, the foal of a donkey. I want you to, to find this animal. He doesn't ask for a horse. He doesn't ask for a carriage. He says, this is what I want you to get for me. And so he sends them off. Jesus is being very specific. And why? Here's the reason. Way back in the Old Testament, in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 10, there was this prophecy. I want you to see it with me. We actually read it earlier in the service, and it says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus knew this prophecy, and so he told his disciples to go and to get this donkey and ultimately to ride it into Jerusalem because he was going to fulfill this prophecy. He wanted people to know he was the king of Zechariah chapter 9. I started by telling you Palm Sunday is all about Jesus not hiding his identity, but wanting to put it on full display to leave no doubt as to who he was. But the prophecy of Zechariah 9 doesn't stop in verse 9 because if it just stopped in verse 9, you'd think that he was just going to be the king of the Jews. But down in verse 10, it goes on and it says this. His rule, this king who will ride on a donkey into Jerusalem, shall be from sea to sea, from the river to what, church? The ends of the earth. Jesus wasn't interested in coming to reveal himself as the king of the Jews or just the king of Israel. The prophecy of Zechariah 9 says that when the man comes into Jerusalem riding on this donkey, when he enters in, he will not just be the king of the Jews. You see, here's the very first thing that Palm Sunday reveals. Palm Sunday reveals Jesus as the king over all things. He's not limited in his scope. He's not limited in his reign. Jesus is saying, listen, everything that I'm doing is to show you that I am the fulfillment of this prophecy, that I am this kind of king. He came into the world 2,000 years ago, not to be a geopolitical king of just one group, 
but to reveal himself and to say to the world, I am the king of kings and I am the Lord of lords. My kingdom, my reign has no end. That's why he does what he does. That's why he enters in that way. Now, sadly, the people of his day, they were too narrow in, his, in their thinking. They were only viewing Jesus as the king who would ultimately rescue and redeem them from the Romans. And Jesus was never about coming and limiting himself just to rescue and to reign over one group of people, but to say, all the earth is mine. All the inhabitants of the earth are mine. They are under my reign and they are under my rule. This is the aspect of Jesus that I think some people tend to forget. Like we will accept and celebrate the teaching of Jesus. We'll talk about that. We're comfortable talking about Jesus and, and his offer of salvation, but we must never forget, church, that as he came that day, he was coming and making himself known as the king over all things. And if this is who he is, if he is truly, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Zechariah chapter nine, and he is, then Jesus today is the king over all things. Amen? Amen. This is true. And it's a good thing that Jesus reveals himself to us as this king because here's the deal. This is, this is the thing that confronts us with Jesus as the king over all things. I'm glad you already said amen. You can't take it back. Ready? <laughs> See, we were created to be ruled. We were, as creation, created to be ruled, to come under the rule of another. We need a king and a king who is Jesus to rule over us. We were made from the beginning to come under God and to submit our lives fully to his reign and to his rule. Our sin makes us rebels against that reign and rule, but we need him as our king because the truth is you and I, because we were made to be ruled by another, are always being ruled by something. And it's either gonna be Jesus as the one who reigns and rules over us or something else. Let me show you what I mean. We got this beautiful grass field out there. Some of you can see wherever you're sitting. A, a friend of mine after the men's breakfast a few weeks ago, he has a, a remote controlled airplane. And so he brought it to fly it. The, it was still that morning. And I went out. It was, really, it was really fun to watch him as he was flying the plane. And the plane's up there in the air and, it, and it's circling. But here's what you need to know about a remote-controlled airplane. It is designed to be controlled by a user. That, that plane, although it's powered, is ultimately responding to the controls that were in my friend's hands. That's the way it was designed. That's its function and its purpose. Because here's the deal. If that plane fails to receive and to come under the control of my friend, that plane all of a sudden doesn't become free. You know this, right? Like something else takes over in that moment. There's another force that begins to, to control it. It's a little force we call gravity, right? And so the, the plane can't be up there in the air and all of a sudden it gets disconnected and says, oh, finally, I'm free to soar wherever I want. No, that thing comes crashing to the ground because the plane was designed to be controlled by another, to submit itself to another. 
We were designed to come under the reign and the rule of a good and gracious king. Jesus Christ is the one who comes to reign and rule over us all to establish his kingdom. And we need it. We need his reign and his rule over us. A number of years ago, a young man came to me. He was struggling with his parents. He grew up in a Christian home. He was still living in that home. And I remember he was so dejected when he came and we began to talk and have our conversation. He was so frustrated because while he grew up in a Christian home and his parents were trying to, to raise him and his siblings and to establish you know, what it looked like to live with Jesus Christ as, as your king, he just didn't like it. He didn't like the morals and the ethics that they were placing upon him. And he said, I'm so depressed. My parents, they, they don't let me do the things that I want to do. If I was just free from my parents, if I was just free from, from them, then I'd really be free. Then I would have joy and then I would have happiness. And I looked at this young man and I said to him, I said, I said, really? I said, you feel that way? He said, yeah. I just feel so constrained by them. And I said, you know what? I would like to offer up to you that the idea of you being out from underneath your parents and that bringing you joy and happiness because you'd ultimately be free is an illusion. And he said, what? I said, yeah, it'd be a total illusion. See, you think that if you come out from underneath your parents and, and their rules and the, and the things that they're trying to instill in you, that you'll be free. And he says, yeah, I will be because I won't have to listen to them. I said, yeah, but you don't understand. You'll be trading one reign and rule for another. He's like, I'm not following. I said, let me explain. You just told me that you believe that your joy and your happiness will be found in doing the things that you ultimately want to do. Do you not see that instead of following your parents and being under their reign and rule, you will be ruled and reigned by your passions. You've just traded one slavery for another. And what happens with your passions is that they're going to change day by day, and so you will be chasing forever, and you will be under the weight of pursuit of happiness and joy, and it will become crushing to you. But it's not just true for that young man, it's true for all of us. If we haven't submitted ourselves to the reign and rule of Jesus, then we are letting something else rule over us. For some of you here today, it could be the pursuit of power. It could be the pursuit of financial security. It could be the pursuit of relationships. That these are the things that rule and reign over you. I'm here to tell you today, because Jesus revealed himself as the king over all things, you can be free from all of that. When you accept the reign and the rule of Jesus, when you accept him as your king, I come to you today and say, Jesus as your king is the best thing. Jesus as king over you is the best thing because you were made for him. In fact, as we consider the resurrection next week, we're gonna consider the truth that he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for who? Him. You were made to live for him. In him is joy and in him is peace. His ways are right and his ways are good. When we fail to come under the reign of Jesus and address him as our king and to bring our lives under his reign and rule, we're no different than a remote-controlled airplane that's lost connection to its controller. We've, we've accepted another force. In fact, the scriptures talk about being in the domain of darkness rather than in the kingdom of light. Jesus comes and he says, would you see me as king? Will you embrace me as the king over all things? He will not have us any other way. Now, I know I'm talking to a lot of people here that say, yes, Dave, Jesus is my king. I, I've already accepted him in that way. 
I, I've seen my need for a king. I've, I've confessed it and I've come under the reign of Jesus. But there's this little thing that happens in the story that even if today you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you believe he's your king, do you notice that the crowds on that day, they called Jesus king. They called Jesus king. And so if you're a Christian here today, like here's, here's my just like um, a side warning. This one is kind of free. Um, here's the deal. It's possible to see Jesus as king, but not to fully embrace his reign over you. Like the people saw Jesus as a king in a certain way. And what I want to guard us against is, listen, like Jesus never conforms his life to yours. Jesus does not conform his life to yours. If he's like your real king, don't go halfway. For Jesus to truly be your king, your life conforms to Jesus. And many times we act like the Jews where we reserve certain parts of our life where we hold up ourselves as still being king and we still reign and we still rule. And Jesus says, I am the king of what? All things, everything, every part of your life comes to me. And so I would ask you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, is there any part of your life today that you are keeping the kingship of Jesus from reigning over? Is there a part of your life, maybe it's your job, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's your money, I don't know what it is, where you're just saying like, Jesus is my king, hing, 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 hing. and then you just like this over here, he's like, but Jesus, I, I still got this. Jesus comes to you and says, release it all, submit it all to me. His commands, they're not suggestions. We submit it all to him. So it reveals to us Jesus as the king over all things, but it also reveals something else to us. Jesus comes and reveals to himself to us as the ultimate prophet, as the ultimate prophet. Now, what does that mean? Why is this important? Why do we have to see this? In the Old Testament, what did prophets do? Prophets were those men who were called by God to speak the word of God to the people of God, to make the revelations of God known. So they spoke what was true from God. They didn't have any authority in themselves. Their authority came to them from the Lord. And so they spoke and they made God known to the people. Now what happens in our story this morning, as you see things unfold in verses 41 through 44, Jesus gets all these praise, all this acclamation from the crowds on that day. But then all of a sudden, something weird happens. Look at verse 41. And when he drew near and he saw the city, he what? Wept over it. That seems kind of weird, doesn't it? They've just been praising you. They've been lifting you up. They've been, they've been shouting your praises. And Jesus' response is that he weeps. And he's not weeping tears of joy. In fact, he goes on after this in verses 42 and following. And he actually rebukes the city and rebukes the people. It's kind of an awkward response. Weeping and crying. What's, what's going on there? Well, verse 42 tells us, he says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And then when you jump down to verse 44, he says, you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus' church is weeping over Jerusalem because they see him, because he sees them having rejected him as the true king over all things. 
They've seen him only in one way as the king of the Jews. And Jesus knew that he didn't simply come to be the king of the Jews. He came to be the king over all things and to rescue and to redeem people, not from the oppression of the Romans, but to save people from the wrath of God. He had spent three years preaching and proclaiming the kingdom, coming and saying, I am the way, the truth, and the what? Life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus was coming and revealing to people that he was the culmination of all the prophecies of all God's plans in order to redeem. Jesus was the word of God made flesh. Do you know what that means? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Do you know what, do you know what that's all about, that verse? It's, it's God's word coming saying, Jesus is the ultimate prophet. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because he knew that there was going to be no more revelation. Jesus knew that if the people at that time in that place didn't accept him as God revealed in the flesh, there was no other option. Nobody else was coming. He says, you did not know the time of your visitation. God was walking amongst them and they had rejected him. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was the ultimate prophet, and yet the people could not see him for who he was. See, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter one said it best. He said, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by his word of power. As we see in Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, we see in Jesus not one more prophet, we see the final prophet, the ultimate prophet, God making himself known once and for all. I'm telling you, Palm Sunday, Jesus is doing all of these things and he's doing them intentionally because he wants everyone to see him for who he truly is. The king over all things, the ultimate prophet. And here's why understanding Jesus as the ultimate prophet is so important. It impacts us in two ways. Number one, it has eternal implications. It has eternal implications because if you reject the word of the Lord, if you reject Jesus Christ, there is no other way for you to find salvation. Jesus is God in the flesh making known the way to salvation. If you take Jesus as just a good teacher, if you take Jesus as just some kind of religious leader, if you don't take him as God come down to rescue and redeem, if you do not accept his word that says there's no way to the Father but through me, if you try and find another way, then your eternity is sealed, but it's not sealed with the Father. It's sealed eternally in hell. There are eternal consequences if you do not view Jesus as the ultimate prophet, as the fulfillment of all the prophecies. And so like, I just have to pause here and say like, have you accepted his word? 
when we come to Easter, I just always find it so, so fascinating that on the, on the days that we talk very explicitly about the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ, like think about what we're saying. We're talking about a man who claims that he lived, he died, and he rose from the dead. Like those are no small claims. Those are big things. And what is before every single one of us is, do I accept his word as right? Do I accept his word as true? Do I believe him to be who he proclaims himself to be? Because he leaves us no other alternative. You see, if he's not the way, the truth, and the life, then there is another way, there is another truth, there is another life. So this has eternal consequences to see him as he truly is. But here's the day-to-day consequence. If you have trusted in Jesus, if he is to you the king who reigns over all things, if he is to you the ultimate prophet, the revealed son of God, God made flesh, then Jesus' words are true, final, and authoritative. If you're a Christian here today and you believe Jesus is who he claimed himself to be, revealed himself to be, do you know what peace there is in knowing Jesus as the ultimate prophet? It means that no matter what anyone else says about you, no matter what you think about yourself, the only word that truly matters in your life and my life is what Jesus says about you. Can I get an amen to that? Think, think about that. If he's the ultimate prophet, and if his words are true and final and authoritative, and they are, think about the great joy and peace in your life. It matters not what the world says about you, what people say about you, what you even think about yourself on a given day, because if it contradicts what Jesus Christ says about you, that you are righteous in him, that you are chosen by him, that you are precious by him, that you are loved in his sight, that you have the power of God dwelling in you, when you feel weak, he says you are strong because my grace is sufficient for you. Think of all the things that Jesus says about you and for you. Those things are true, they are final, and they are authoritative. And so any other word that contradicts that, you can tell it to go where Satan resides. Uh, Some of you connected those dots, right? I'm not going to say it. Isn't that wonderful? Like, this isn't a small thing that he reveals himself as the ultimate prophet. Like, his word is true and final and authoritative. That means that you and I go out into the world every day with the truth because we are bombarded with lies from without and within. And you take those things and you submit them and say, but what does Jesus say about me? When you feel condemned and you feel there's no hope for forgiveness, the final word of God says, there is therefore now what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you say, I just don't feel like I can ultimately overcome this sin, Jesus said, in this world you will have troubles, but take heart for I have overcome what? The world. Do you believe it? Do you see how actually every day you and I battle against actually functionally living as though this were true? But we can embrace it, church, because Jesus reveals himself to be the ultimate prophet, the one whose word is the only word that matters for your life and my life. Years ago, the, the movie came out after the, after the book was written about the Nobel Peace Prize or the Nobel Prize winner, John Nash. Remember the book, A Beautiful Mind, the movie, A Beautiful Mind? John Nash struggled with schizophrenia, and so there were times where he would imagine things that weren't true, and he needed people in his life to ultimately come alongside of him and to help him say, like, is this true or is this not true? Am I, am I seeing this? Am I believe- is this right or is it not right? That's who Jesus is for us every day, the truth, the word that comes into the Christian's life and says, 
that's a lie. Here's my truth. This is a comfort and a hope to us on Palm Sunday. But then the greatest comfort and hope, I believe, of all of these things in Palm Sunday, the thing that ultimately allows Jesus to reign over us, that allows us to accept him as the ultimate prophet, is that Jesus on Palm Sunday reveals himself as the great high priest. He reveals himself as the great high priest. Where do we see that? Well, we see it here in verses 45 and following. To understand Jesus as the great high priest, you have to understand the temple. In Jesus' day, the temple was broken up into three different places. The most inner place of worship for the people of God in the temple was the court of Israel. Outside the court of Israel was the court of women, where both men and women could be. Only men could be in the court of Israel. And then the final outer court was what they called the court of the Gentiles. The temple was a place where the people of God came to worship God, to make their sacrifices to God, so that they would look forward with those sacrifices to the promise that that God would atone for their sins and that, that he would forgive their sins. They were making sacrifices, looking forward to a future promise. And Jesus, after he rides into Jerusalem, makes his way to the temple. And what does he do? He goes off in the temple. He just goes off, verse 45. And he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold. Where, where is he? Jesus comes into the court of the Gentiles. And when he gets there, what does he see? He sees all of these Booths set up where there are money changers and people selling animals for sacrifices. The court of the Gentiles was the only place where non-Jews could actually come and worship God. It was not supposed to be a marketplace. It was supposed to be a place of worship. And Jesus sees on that day that what the people had done to make it convenient for other people to come and to worship and to get their sacrifices was they had set up all of these, these booths and places where you could purchase animals and exchange your money if you were a foreigner inside the place that was dedicated to worship. And Jesus says, I'm not having it. He starts driving people out and he gives the reason for it. He says, it is written, my house shall be what? A house of prayer. But you have made it a den of robbers. If you notice, nobody stops Jesus from doing it. He comes in and he whips things into a frenzy. He drives people out. Why? Because Jesus is a great high priest. They're in his house. They're desecrating the place that he has established to point to him as the great high priest, as the one who would ultimately make atonement for all sins. Jesus says, you can't disrupt the worship of me. And so he drives them out with passion and with fury. The crazy thing is, there were other priests there that day. Yet they had allowed this to happen and Jesus steps in. He takes on the role that God has given to him to be the priest for his people and he does what the other priests should have done. He drives the people out. Why? Because that was his house. He is the great high priest. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 7.23 says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that is Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he, that is Jesus, did this once for all after offering himself up. Church, Jesus didn't just come to reveal himself as the king over all things, as the final revelation of God, but to also come and to make an atonement for sins. 
and he upended what was happening in the temple because the temple was the place that was to point people to the ultimate sacrifice that would be made, and that sacrifice is Jesus Christ. We have a great high priest. That's what the author of Hebrews says. That high priest is none other than Jesus Christ. Why is that important? Why do we need Jesus and to know him as the great high priest? It's because every single person here has lived their lives at some point as a rebel against God. See, when you reject Jesus as the king over all things, if you've lived any portion of your life not under submission to the, to the commandments of God, then you need a high priest because you are a sinner who has sins that need to be atoned for. And the only one who can do that is one who is perfect and righteous and can stand in your place. The only reason why we can believe the words that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is because Jesus made the atonement for sins that we could not make. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. And if you are here today and you recognize that you're a sinner, but see that Jesus is the provision that God has made for us to have our sins forgiven, then we have this great peace and we have this great joy in knowing that one day we will be fully reconciled with our God, with our Father forever. And listen to me, when Jesus comes into the temple and he flips over the tables and he drives people out, it tells me something about Jesus. See, let me go back a few verses. When Jesus came and he looked over Jerusalem, what was his response? What did Jesus do? It's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. What does that reveal to us about the heart of Jesus for the lost? What does that reveal to us about God's heart for those who are perishing? He weeps. Why? Because he wishes that we would know peace. He wishes us to know that there is hope and there's salvation to be found. When Jesus goes in the temple and he starts flipping things over, you know what's one of the things I love? That reveals something else to me about Jesus. Yeah, he weeps for the lost but it also shows us that he is not willing, that he's not unwilling to get his hands dirty and do things in your life and my life to shake things up. Could you imagine being there on that day? Could you imagine seeing Jesus doing that? Do you think you would have felt uncomfortable? Like, let's hope nobody starts doing this, right? But let's, what if somebody came in here, right? And they just start like turning over tables and things like that. And you're just like, wow, yeah. We'd all feel really uncomfortable, Part of my job and responsibility as a preacher of God's word is to bring the word before us and sometimes it's going to make us uncomfortable because Jesus wants to turn our lives upside down a little bit. He wants us to ask the hard questions. Has your life lived under the reign and rule of Jesus perfectly? Have you always accepted his word as final and true? If you haven't, you're a sinner and you're going to hell. That's what God's word says. For the wages of sin is death. But there is a great high priest whose name is Jesus and he made a sacrifice for sin once and for all. Have you accepted him? I mean, we need him as our king. We need his word of truth. But more than anything else, you need him as your great high priest who intercedes for you because you can't intercede for yourself. And Lord, would you hear the prayers of your people? We've heard your word preached. We've participated in your supper. And we come and we trust you to be the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the great high priest. You are for us what we cannot be. 
and in your sufficiency we rejoice this morning. And all God's people said, amen, amen.